big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we have a bunch of new patrons to thank. So shout out to Emily, Katie, Jill, Gabriella, Trevor, Sequoia, and Muriel. If you want to be like these awesome people and get access to exclusive content like our notes, outtakes, bonus episodes, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. And don't forget that we're also selling stickers over at podandprejudice.com slash merch. They're very cute, if I do say so myself, and they're a great way to show your support of the show and spread the word. And now, enjoy this week's episode covering part two of five of the 2005 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice with our guest, Will Williams. This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about the second section of the first half of the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice starring Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, fingers crossed. What if we just said directed by Joe Wright? Directed by Joe Wright. And we are here with our guest, Will Williams. How's it going? Hi, hello. It's going so well. Thank you so much for joining us after such a long hiatus, Will. Oh, yeah. Very, very, very long. But I fit it into my schedule and it was fine. <laughs> Will, do you want to tell our listeners what you do in the podcast world and in work and life? Yeah, for sure. So I am a podcast critic and journalist. I write reviews and, and what have you for a bunch of different outlets. And I'm also the showrunner on Valence, which is a fiction podcast. And it is very good. I enjoy it a lot. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So now, as we walk into this, Molly, where were we in this adaptation? So listeners, for us, it's been a hot two minutes since we last yeah. spoke <laughs> of this movie. But for you, it's been two weeks. So to remind you, we've just discussed Lizzie and Jane being at Netherfield and Darcy flexing his hand very sexily mm -hmm. and that really gives you all you need to know on where we're at so we can just move right into the next scene which is our boy Mr. Collins your boy <laughs> <laughs> all right first things first as our listeners know I hated Mr. Collins in the last adaptation I hated him in the book I thought what is the point of this character and I have gone on a journey first from seeing this movie and hating this Collins because I thought David Bamber in the 1995 was so good at being disgusting and this Collins was not disgusting. Then I watched it again and I thought this Collins is really sweet and kind of just bumbling and doesn't understand what he's supposed to do 
and he has his idea set out in front of him. He knows what he wants and he is going to do it because that is what is expected of him by Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And I love him a lot. <laughs> he is a dweeb. Yeah, I mean, that is a take. I think he continues to be a slight misogynist, but mm-hmm. one that is less aware of his problematic nature. Or I would say the David Bamber Collins is not aware, but I disagree. Taking more pleasure in being awful. Yeah, this Collins is very just like he's trying his best. His best is just something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when we get to his proposal, I have thoughts and I don't think that he was malintentioned at all. And we'll get there. Mm-hmm. But First, we have dinner time and he is complimenting them on their home. And he says the line about what excellent boiled potatoes these are, which is for some reason really famous. I think it's just the intensity with which he says it. Mm-hmm. About such a like deeply plain food. <laughs> like <laughs> No one has ever thought boiled potatoes are excellent. Mashed potatoes? I like a boiled potato. I'm not gonna lie though. In the movie they look good as hell. Like I they would do. I would fuck up those potatoes. <laughs> They've got butter and scallions on them. Like Yeah man. But you did explain kind of liking boiled potatoes. I like them and I I will tell you why. I am from Syracuse, New York, and we have a thing. I can't eat them anymore because I'm vegan now, but salt potatoes. Salt potatoes are so good. They're so good. They're so good. You just boil the potatoes in a buttfuck ton of salt. You just like put blocks and blocks of salt in the water, and then you put butter all over them. And that was like my favorite food growing up. All right. Fair enough. I stand corrected. But I think boiled potatoes without anything else on them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, back when we had Caroline on the show, they made like a thread for us of what each Pride and Prejudice character would be if they were a potato dish and Collins (laughs) was boiled potatoes. And I get it now. Perfect. Yeah, it was great. So he talks about Lady Catherine de Bourgh. He brings up Lady Catherine de Bourgh and he says the line, my rectory abuts her estate. And I lost it. I could not stop thinking about butts. Oh, man. And I'm sorry, but that's just what I heard. And they did that on purpose. Oh, that's valid. Never apologize for butts. <laughs> Buttholes, specifically. Yep. Yeah. God bless. That was one of those... Those moments where I was like, they told him to do it that way so that I would think Mm. about his butthole. And I did. And it worked. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Everyone at the table is laughing at him as he does his Mr. Collins thing, except Mrs. Bennett, who is furious that he is there because he is the symbol of everything that she hates. He is going to come in, take their estate and leave with it. And, And actually, in the scene leading up to this, I think Lizzie mentioned he could come whenever he wants. I don't think he even needs to wait for Mr. Bennett to die in this version, which makes him a little scarier. But also, he doesn't really want to do that, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, he wants to marry one of them. It's very clear. So, sweet boy. I really like him. (laughs) So, after dinner, he suggests that he read to them for an hour or two from Fordyce's sermons. And Mr. Bennett looks like, oh my god, are you really going to do that to me? (laughs) Then we jump to after dinner, and he tells Mrs. Bennett that he intends to marry one of them, and you could see on her face, like, her going from hating him and everything that he stands for to 
loving him. Like a light switch. Yep, she turned it on. Oh yeah, absolutely. Turned on the charm. She was like, oh, well, Jane is engaged probably almost, but Lizzie next to her. And he, poor thing, first of all, he looked so heartbroken, crestfallen, one might say, when she said that Jane was going to be engaged soon. And then Lizzie was just the next best thing. And that's just what it is. Yeah. Also, just the earnestness with which he's like, oh, no, Jane. Yes, I want Jane. It's like, no, you you know, she gets a say. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's where he's still Mr. Collins is a little bit. (laughs) Yes. Sure. But I think it's because he doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. And because those are the, the standards of the time is that he's supposed to pick a wife. And so he doesn't get that he's not supposed to, like, ask her if she wants to marry him. Yeah. Right. I think he just doesn't understand the social cues going on right now. Yeah. So then we jump to town and we see the handkerchief that Lizzie has dropped tumbling along and someone bends and picks it up and oh, it's Wickham. And Kitty and Lydia are falling all over him and he is turning on the charms and they go ribbon shopping And he talks about how he has no taste in ribbons or buckles. And one note that I had is that, and we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but this version of Wickham is so over the top with how sad he is. Like, I'm so poor and sad and no one likes me. And he's like, oh, I I don't have any taste in ribbons. And Lizzie's like, oh, you must be the laughingstock of the militia. What will they do with you? And he's like, ignore me mostly. I'm not important. And I was like, shut up. Okay. Yeah, a couple gripes with Wickham. We'll get into this now. This is the biggest flaw in the movie, I think, by a very long shot, is the complete, I wouldn't say bastardization of the Wickham plotline, but absolute minimization of the Wickham plotline. And it starts with Wickham himself. It's so weird. Like, it's nothing. It's nothing. Like, there's no gravity to it. There's no real weight. Like, we understand that what winds up happening shouldn't have happened and is bad. And, like, Wickham is manipulative, I guess. but. It seems so incidental to the plot, whereas I'm used to it being like the climax, like the actual climax. It feels like they shifted the climax from that moment to the like love confession. And I I get that, but I think it's a big disservice to the story overall. I would hard agree. Like you even look at like a modern day adaptation that barely follows the plot of Pride and Prejudice, like Bridget Jones' Diary. Mm hmm. Bridget Jones' Diary is just entirely built around the plot featuring Lizzie Wickham and Darcy. That is the, like, crux of the story is having this really bad interaction with the seemingly snotty guy and this smart woman instead finds utter charm in this man he supposedly ruined. Mm -hmm. And then all along she realizes, oh, I was prone to flattery and I was prone to all these things that I didn't think I was prone to. But it turns out that I was a fool. And like, that's the pride. That's the prejudice. Right, right. I love this adaptation. I think that they do a wonderful job capturing the nuances and the sweetness that is missing in a lot of adaptations of Lizzie and Darcy. But I do think like Wickham needs to be a bigger part of the story always. And on top of that, once again, Wickham is supposed to be hot. And once again, Darcy is hotter than Wickham. Yeah. His ponytail looks greasy. The ponytail is so bad. To quote Mike, he looks like the guy who showed up at the gym already smelling bad. <laughs> He's like deeply uncharismatic too. There's like zero chemistry between them. He is oatmeal boring. Like nothing about this story. It The thing about the Wickham storyline in this movie 
is that it feels like a waste of time. Yes. And that's wild. Like, it's such an important plot. Yeah, I was thinking, like, if you're going to go as far as to diminish it this much, just cut it. and Just cut it. Give us a different reason why Darcy does something. Like, just change it. Like, because I was watching this and I was like, I don't care about this plot line. And it feels like you could have done something else with this time. And I was mad about it. I was At first, I was mad because I was like, how dare they change the plot of Pride and Prejudice? And then I was mad. I was like, why are you making me sit through this? Like, yes, it's only a two hour movie. Use the time better. And the thing is, like, it is such a crucial part of the plot because one, you have real reasons why Lizzie hates Darcy, not just her own weird evaluation of him. Mm-hmm. You have the reason she questions herself mm-hmm. in the letter and the reason why we start to sympathize with Darcy. You have the main driving moment where we learn how far Darcy will go for Lizzie. You have a reckoning for the Bennets on all of their ridiculous behavior. It's all tied back to Wickham, and Wickham is just like a nullity in this film. It's so strange. It felt like they shifted the focus from Wickham to the conflict of Jane and Bingley. But then they also didn't really back that up with anything because the audience is kept so much out of Darcy's like internal processing for why he meddled there. So like I get that they wanted to go a little bit stronger with Jane Bingley in this adaptation, but then they didn't back it up enough and then the Wickham thing was just there and awkward like they had too many priorities but none of them were in the right order. Yeah. Uh listeners, we still love this adaptation yes. all three of us. So yes. like this rant comes with a little asterisk of like you can still love this movie and critique the Wickham plotline in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say also in the 1995 version, they really leaned into the whole he is a pedophile thing. And this Wickham doesn't look that much older than Lydia. Yeah. And he treats her like a kid. In this scene in the ribbon shop, she asks Lizzie for some money and he's like, oh, please, no, let me. And then he pulls a quarter out from behind her ear. And we see Lydia like very much being like, oh, Wickham. Oh, my gosh. But we also he looks like he could be. 20 yeah maybe I think the actor probably is quite young yeah and that takes away it makes it like in different adaptations in the book and in in the other adaptation there are different reasons for why Wickham sucks and in the book they definitely leaned more into him being a gold digger and I think that's what this movie wanted to do Mm -hmm. it just didn't do it nope also this is like not important at all but this ribbon shop looks weird as hell oh yeah It's just, it's such a weird set. It's so strange. And also, like, ribbons are such a thing in this movie. Yes. Very weird. Very weird. Then they leave the ribbon shop, thank goodness, and they're walking home along a little river, and Bingley and Darcy ride by on the other side of the river, and Lydia yells out to them, and he's like, oh, you must invite Wickham to your ball. And we see Wickham, and we see Darcy, and we see them look at each other, and then Darcy turns his horse around and runs away. <laughs> did anybody else notice that Bingley and Darcy matched their horses? Yes. Yes. I did not. It's ridiculous. Wait, were they wearing outfits to match their horses? Yeah. They were. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. I was, for one, disappointed that they weren't on the same horse. <laughs> As always. As always. In the book, if you'll all remember, they do not clarify that they are on two horses. They say they enter on a horse. No, they say they enter on horses. You just misspoke. I refuse to believe that. (laughs) (laughs) How sweet. I like it. (laughs) Honestly, like, 
everything would be solved if all of these characters were gay. Yeah. And that's, I'll continue to say it, screaming from the rooftops. Mary, gay. Gay. Bingley and Darcy, gay. gay. All of them. Gay. Kitty, gay. Gay. Lydia, Lydia gay. Lydia gay. Yeah. She would not have run off with Wickham. So, solved. (laughs) There we go. Boom. Then, I wanted to make a note on the hats. I really like them. I wish that they were still in style. The, like, covering the back of the head and then just, like, coming straight up like a lion's mane. Love it. (laughs) You could wear one. I could wear one. That's true. I noticed that, like, Mary, when she comes home at one point, takes it off and it's tied around her neck with a ribbon. I guess that's why they need all these ribbons. And she can just, like, have it behind her. And I love that. Like, how convenient. Very good. So then we have Wickham and Lizzie sitting on a tree talking about Darcy and Wickham gives the backstory and it sounds very pre-rehearsed and very lackluster and he doesn't actually seem angry about anything. And I mean, the really most distracting thing about the scene, other than the fact that it's just not well done, is that he looks like a red coat from the Revolutionary War, which he basically is. Yes. Yeah. So it just like it takes you out of it a little bit. It's weird. Yeah. Also, he is standing and she is sitting. And so the angle that we're getting of him is like from below and he's like playing with the tree and not making eye contact. And then when he starts talking about Darcy, he starts taking a step forward with everything he says. So this is one instance. I think this may be the first instance that this shot could be used in a horror film. He starts (laughs) moving in. He says, you know, Darcy, his father loved me best and he didn't like it. And if he wants to leave, then he should leave. I'm not going to run away. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. I mean, just add that to the pig nets and the whole thing is set. Yeah. And there's so many more. Somebody has to have done this, right? It has to. So the, the reason I think I thought of it is because I did see a video of something that happens later in the movie, the scene where they're at Pemberley and Lizzie's peeking in through the window. Through the door, right? Yeah. The door. And then she runs away. And then he turns around. He sees her. She goes, (gasps) and then she runs away. And someone set that to horror movie music. Yes. So I want the whole movie, like how they did it with Schitt's Creek for Halloween, where they like made it into a trailer for a horror movie. I want that. But for this movie, and I have no video editing skills. So someone please make it. They they do exist. (gasps) Oh, of course they do. Oh, good. Yeah. I will send you links in the chat. Excellent. Amazing. So following our Wickham sob story, we have a transitional scene where Betsy is walking around the house. Betsy is one of the servants and singing a song. And Jane and Lizzie are talking about Darcy. And Jane doesn't believe her that he could possibly have done that to Wickham. And Lizzie's like, let him deny it himself till then. I never want to talk to him. Which like, how are you going to, how's he going to deny it if you don't talk to him about it? Lizzie, come on, communication skills. But she's just mad. And then that's the end of that scene. But I did notice that in that last bit, Jane is in her corset or her stays or whatever it's called. And she's just got like either a leaf or a tuft of lavender just like tucked in her boob sticking out. Did anyone else notice that? Yeah, why not, man? I did not notice it. Yeah, why not? I guess it's it's like part of the, maybe it's supposed to make her smell good. Yeah, I think it was lavender and I think it was like for the purpose of scent. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Attention to detail. I'm gonna start doing that. Just like a little flower titty. Yeah. <laughs> so that brings us to our next scene, the ball at Netherfield. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Oh, yes. We begin with a shot of Collins walking in, looking around, looking nervous. 
I noticed that everyone is in white or like creams and beiges in this scene, which is, I guess, to show that this is a fancy ball. Also, not everyone's in period costume here, but this was really just like a time to luxuriate and what people thought looked good in the 2005 era. Yeah. And it does look good. It does look really good. It definitely does look good. I noticed, I think, I'm not sure what Caroline was wearing in this one, but she was wearing a lot of Empire waist dresses, which are more 1810s, according mm-hmm. to this video that I watched, whereas the more drop waist dresses are like 1790s, etc. And she was definitely wearing something like that in this scene, looking very pretty. Um, Lizzie and Jane go to greet Bingley, and Lizzie's like looking around. We know that she's looking for Wickham, but Wickham ain't there. Lizzie's hair in this scene is very mid-2000s, not at all, period. Absolutely. The fishtail braids. Yes. Yes. The fishtail braids just, like, woven in and out of her bun. Like, she was ready to go to prom. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) With, like, the little pearls in there everywhere. It was a lot. The hair accessories were so mid-2000s. Yes. Like, a la Lizzie McGuire. Honestly, I'm surprised they didn't have butterfly clips. (laughs) It's probably good that we didn't get the scene where they went to Claire's together. (laughs) (laughs) Just debating Wickham while Jane gets her ears pierced. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And they need those like charm bracelets with the pop out square charms and you like put them on. Yes. Oh, so good. Yes. Oh my God. So this is actually the first note that I actually have about horror film. And I started like really picking them up after this. Lizzie is walking through looking for Wickham. And she's coming down and the shot is just her and she's entering another room and then Darcy comes out behind her, follows her for a second and then turns away. And it's so just like he is a vampire yeah, (laughs) or a ghost. (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about. And we'll post a clip of this on our social media. But like, this is it. He is going for it. And then he turns away and the music is swelling. He's put the like Jaws soundtrack under that. Absolutely. So Jane tells Lizzie Wickham isn't coming because he was detained or something. Then Collins pops up and asks Lizzie to dance. And he and Charlotte are the same height, but they're both like way shorter than everybody else. And they're standing next to each other in this moment. And I liked that framing because it was like, we get to see that they they match a little bit better than Lizzie. Yeah, that was a good choice. They move into the dance. And this was a thing in the last movie too, but not so much, which is having a conversation while dancing and like you have to talk while you're near them and Lizzie's having two conversations at once one is Collins trying to woo her and one is Jane talking about Wickham and poor Collins doesn't understand that there's two things happening at once no no he does not also him dancing with Lizzie looks yikes yes I really like uh, the sort of cadence that so I'm not wild about Keira Knightley's performance in this film I think that it is Absolutely serviceable. I mean, her chin does a lot of the work for her. Her chin and her cheekbones uh, are doing a lot. She's fine. But I do like, and I don't, you know, I don't know if I can credit this to the director or to her, but I like that there's this vibe that, you know, she only really speaks as she is like passing the other person with maybe a little bit, she goes a little bit long sometimes. But it, it gives it this feeling of like when she is not speaking, she's like, be witty, be witty, be witty. And then she gets it <laughs> all out in like one go. Yeah. Like she's so deliberate in what she says. It feels like she's almost not listening to the other person, which I think is very in character for her. Especially with Darcy. Yes. And especially when we get to that dance, everything that she says is like, I'm going to tell you how this conversation is going. Yes. And you're going to follow along. 
<laughs> so after the dance, this is another moment where this could be a horror movie shot. She's like laughing and laughing. And then all of a sudden there's just a wall of man in front of her. Yes. <laughs> and it's Darcy. And she looks up. Matthew McFadyen is so tall. He's so tall. Is he really that tall? Or did they make him look extra tall? I'd be interested. He's tall. He's tall. I'm here, I would look up his height right now. This is important. He's at least got like really tall energy. He does. He has tall energy. 6'3". 6'3"? Okay. But I just went off my my vocal charts. Graham, sorry. But he's a tall boy. He's a tall boy. So she sees him. He asks if she'll dance with him. She says yes. And this was so 2005. And I loved every second of it. She and Charlotte immediately run into the other room. And she's like, did I just agree to dance with him? <laughs> like she just blacked out a little. Uh-huh. And Charlotte says that she's sure she'll find him agreeable. And she's like, well, that would be inconvenient because I've sworn to hate him for all eternity. And they giggle about it. And it's such a 2005 mood. Mm-hmm. And you can see it's a little gentler here. Like she's not as pissed off to dance with him. Right. Yeah. She's just like stressed out and doesn't know what to do. Yeah. And she's laughing at it. Like in the 1995, she was like, shit, what did I fucking do? In this one, she's like, huh, oh, God. What? Well, dance with Darcy. Yeah. Then it's time for their dance. This dance is so weird. I'll just get that out there right off the bat. It's weird. Why? Like walk in circles, dip a little, like bend <laughs> knees a little. What is this? Uh-huh. This is not a dance. This is like just a very sad walk. And funny that it starts with her saying, I love this dance and him saying, yes, quite invigorating. Yeah. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, it's not. Okay. <laughs> Haters going to hate. I love this dance. I think it's so hot. <laughs> no, it's hot. It's certainly hot, but it's super weird. Like they make it hot. Like. The actual mechanics of the dance. Like, if you took that dance out of this specific scenario and you watched someone do it, you would be like, are you good? Right. Like, are you are you okay? What are you doing? That's where you find me at a party. <laughs> but additionally, the cinematography here is so strange because we have them first. They're having the conversation. There's sarcasm. There's she's trying to tell him how the conversation's going to go. He doesn't know what to do. They stop in the middle. Everyone is still dancing. And this is when she brought up Wickham, I believe. And their faces are really close to each other. And he's like, why are you asking me these questions? And she's like, I'm just trying to figure you out. And then everyone fades away. And they're in a different room Yeah, all of a sudden. The room is like 10 times smaller. And they're just like looking at each other and walking in circles. And I felt like I was in a different movie. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Every time she asks him about Wickham, he gets so close to her. <laughs> like very specifically. And it's weird because this happens later on in the first proposal in the rain scene where he's like pretty far away. And then she asks about Wickham. And then he, like, gets real close. That's a very weird cue to be, like, sexual tension on. (laughs) Talking about Wickham. Like, don't get me wrong. The tension worked on me. I was into it. But, like, the lead up to it was so bizarre. (laughs) He's a a boy who doesn't really know the difference between getting close in, like, oh, I want to fight you and getting close in, oh, I want to kiss you. Yeah. It's, like, all the same to him. And (laughs) I love how he says Mr. Wickham every time he's like, Mr. Wickham. (laughs) Mr. Wickham. Wickham has a name that's easy to say with disdain. Yeah. Yep. It's those fricatives. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. 
Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pot and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. So after the dance, Lizzie is flushed and Collins is like oh is that Mr. Darcy we're just dancing with and he goes to introduce himself the height difference oh the height difference because Collins is probably like five three yeah so it's a full foot and the room gets silent when he says Mr. Darcy which is like just another moment like why is the room getting silent like why did it get silent when he arrived and why is it getting silent now yeah it's too much too much it's like a thunderclap it's like all right yes. everyone's listening and Caroline Bingley is like, oh, your relatives are very interesting. And then they both bow at each other, she and Lizzie. Another instance of like, we have to be polite, but we hate each other. Yep. Oh, yeah. What follows next is like, so I've been doing a Marvel rewatch recently. And Mike pointed this out a bit. But have you both seen the first Avengers film? Yeah. Yes. It's been a, a really long time. So there's a shot where they're fighting as the Avengers for the first time that follows each of them fighting <laughs> through New York City, like fighting aliens. Yeah, 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 uh -huh. yeah, yeah, okay. This is like that shot, but just for Bennett family humiliation <laughs> through the party. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you are not wrong. Wow. <laughs> that, that I have to credit to Mike. That was not my take. Hashtag Mike takes. <laughs> Hashtag a Mike takes. So yeah, it starts with, we hear... Mary's singing and Lizzie walks into that room and we get the shot of Mary singing and Daddy Bennett coming and closing the piano and Mary cries and everyone's laughing at her and it's just like it's so sad. I feel so bad for her. It's not even like in the 1995 I could laugh at Mary with everyone else because she was kind of like the worst from being angsty and she was the worst. In this one she's just trying to play the piano and she's not bad she's not good but she's not bad yeah it was so mean then we move to kitty and lydia 
getting drunk and just giggling really loudly and they they run past. We see Mrs. Bennett sitting with her wine and like her little feet, her little two feet are just like dangling. Yeah, she's just like kicking around. I feel like she's really short. I don't yeah. know like what she looks like against everyone else, but she seems like she's got short energy. As a short who loves to drink, I felt very seen in this moment. I felt very represented. I love it. My people aren't talked about off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're getting the representation you deserve. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) We also see Bingley following Jane around like a puppy and he's talking about horses and she's kind of doing the Jane thing where she's she's interested. We know she is, but she's not good at showing him. And he reaches out and touches the ribbon on the back of her dress like very reverently. And it's super strange. Yes. I find it so sweet, though. Like, it's such a tender moment. It's tender. It's also like two steps away from him smelling her hair. Absolutely. (laughs) Precisely. That's what it was. I was like, he is looking at her like she is. She smells good. This poor boy's got it bad. He does. Then Lizzie walks into the the other room with the dancing and already Kitty and Lydia are dancing in there. I don't know how they went from like getting drunk to being in the middle of a dance, but that seems like it was just a film flaw. Yeah. Perhaps. Jane is dancing with someone else and Bingley is watching And across from them, we see Lizzie and Charlotte talking about how Jane is shy, but Bingley doesn't know that. And Jane better show him how she feels. And and I agree with that. Mm -hmm. And then we move down the hall and we see Darcy and Caroline dancing. And I was just thinking, like, imagine being so upset with your life that you have to be as mean as Caroline Bingley You're at a party at your own house and you're not having any fun and you're just making fun of everyone. And she says, I can't help feeling that at any point this evening, someone is going to produce a piglet and make us chase it. What a miserable person. Truly. Let me tell you, if you need to make yourself feel better by shitting on the people around you and trying to make yourself feel better that way, you're not doing a good job for your own self-love. Nope. No. Caroline Bingley in a nutshell. Someone needs to talk to Caroline Bingley about punching down. That's for damn sure. Mm -hmm. Girl, you're rich. Shut up. For real. And then we see Mrs. Bennett and she's eating pudding out of a cup and she accidentally spills some on somebody and then she takes her spoon and she scoops it off of his chest and eats it. Again, felt very represented. Um, (laughs) Do you see myself in her? (laughs) Amazing. I love it. Honestly, I have seen myself in Mrs. Bennett for quite some time. She's high strung. Everything is a big deal. I get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's loud. <laughs> She's loud. I'm loud. Graham is constantly telling me that I'm loud. So, <laughs> then, and this part broke my heart. Collins is standing in the middle of the hall holding a daisy. And when I first saw this, I was like, what the fuck is he doing with that daisy? But then the next scene, he has a new flower. And you just know he had planned to propose to Lizzie tonight. And he brought the flower. He was looking for her all night. Yeah. He was so nervous. Hurts me. It's so sweet. It breaks my heart. I just felt so bad for him. And he just, he goes in with such purpose. We'll get to it in a minute. But like, he had a plan and his plan got torn from him. And poor guy had to stay there until like 5 a.m. being miserable. So, huh. In this moment, we also see Mary crying in the hallway and Mr. Bennett coming in, hugging her. And that was a really nice moment. She was like, I practiced all week. And he was like, I know, I'm sorry. A little hug. Yeah. He made her cry, but then he comforted her. Yeah. And he's just a good dad. I I think he's a good dad. I know that he fucks up in some ways, but 
I think that actually, I'll say this about this. In the 1985 version and in the book, something that we talked about a lot was how his failings as a father were such that his daughters were out of control and that was going to ultimately be the downfall of the family. Whereas in this one, I don't see that he has failings as a father, to be honest. Like, yeah, they're out of control, but they love him. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's just kind of chill that they're out of control. He seems very accepting of the fact that they have this chaos energy. Feels like, if anything, he, like, kind of revels in it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he does thrive in the chaos a little. I think that it goes back to what I was saying in the first scene, is that this adaptation paints the Bennets as a much more functional family unit. They're much warmer with each other. Yes. Yes. So then it's light out, and they leave, and what time must it be? It must be, like, 5 a.m., and they're the only ones. Yeah, like, 5 or 6. Yeah. And so (laughs) Becca's note says, raged all night. (laughs) Okay. They did. Like, yeah, we've all been to that party where you stayed too long and you're like the last one there. And what I like about this is that that is the vibe that is happening in the book. Mm-hmm. But this leaving at dawn actually captures that because that's what we know to happen when you leave the party too late. Right. And Charles and Caroline are watching them leave. And Caroline is like, Charles, you cannot be serious. And that is the end of that scene, which is ominous. That brings me to my study question. So the ball in this part really highlights the difference between this adaptation and the original source material and also the 1995 adaptation. And in several different ways that I personally think come out in this scene. If you guys have any insights that you want to speak to with that. I will say it does feel like you know, it's kind of steeped in the aesthetic of the film, the aesthetic of the period. To some degree, though, there is obviously anachronism. But it felt so deeply modern to me, the way that the scene, like, again, the pacing of it, the way it was shot. It felt very similar to me to the party scene in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Like, that's the vibe that I got from it. That is so fascinating because I didn't put that together, but it absolutely has that vibe. I was like, where is the angel wigs? <laughs> yeah. In my heart, love, till now. <laughs> like, this is a completely unrelated note, but that Romeo and Juliet has so much potential. Yes. But Claire Danes and Leo DiCaprio yes. are not trained in Shakespeare, no. and it is vastly apparent. Big agree. <laughs> yeah, I watched uh, the first maybe half an hour of that movie and stopped. Uh-huh. It's a lot. Here's the thing. The guy who plays Mercutio is sublime. Yes. John Leguizamo yes. and Tybalt. Perfect. Yes. So good. Both Romeo and Juliet are terrible. It's weird because the cast is fairly diverse. And then for the leads, they were like, guess we better get two really bland whites. Like, mm-hmm. the blandest white people you could get. And I like Claire Danes. I am, I am a fan of Claire Danes. I loved my so-called life. Leonardo DiCaprio is a man who exists. Uh, but damn, they really were not good in those roles. I feel like we're going to get roasted by somebody for this take, okay. but I don't care. Oh, certainly. We'll get roasted for most takes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I completely agree. I come from the opposite point of view, which is I love Leo. Um, mm. Wasn't necessarily super attracted to him, but I do think he's an underrated actor. And it took me so long to not hate Claire Danes because that was the first thing I ever saw her in. Oh, yeah, that, that'll that get you. <laughs> you know what actually broke it was Stardust. Oh, I love Stardust. What a fun time. Wonderful movie. Yeah. I've never seen that. It's a delight. Another adaptation of a very good book. Which book? Neil Gaiman. Stardust. Oh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all I'll say on 
on that matter. But I, I think that the Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet, the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, the movie, is that it's so close to being brilliant because some of the aesthetic choices are so interesting. And the way they do the ball is very interesting, bringing us back to Pride and Prejudice. It works here. It does work here. It felt really natural. And it also felt like a way to do a period piece rager. Yeah. Like, it totally sold me. The long shot uh, that, that you had mentioned, like, following through with all the tragedies, basically, like, that feels like that kind of weird meandering energy of like going through a messy party. Uh, but it also feels very in line with the story itself. I really enjoyed the scene. I, I thought that it worked really, really well. I, I did too. And I think that in keeping with the rest of the film, it really brought a chaotic energy. There yes. was a lot happening all at once. And that is something that was happening in the 1995 version, but this one got it with more yelling. Yeah, I actually think this is such a fun scene and that's really what sets it apart from both the book and the 1995 Mm -hmm. because that scene in the book and the 1995 is painful Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah painful to watch no one's having fun Mm -hmm. like they're all there they're all miserable and here like obviously the Bennett's are not acting with the most propriety but they fit into the general chaos of a fun party there's more of a romp happening around them and so it's not as obvious that they're really bringing shame to the family name whereas in the 1995 it's like oh god mary stop playing the piano right now right right although there is the moment of caroline pointing out like your relatives are very interesting and that felt very on the nose to me i was like we got it we got it (laughs) so the next morning Everyone is hungover. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Bennett cracks an egg into her milk. She sure does. Like, hey, that's a that's a protein hit. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make it very clear. I don't feel represented by this. <laughs> <laughs> I felt represented by this. <laughs> this was so much. They were all like, ow, it's too loud. Mary, stop playing the piano. We're so hungover. And then Collins comes down and he clears his throat and only Mary looks up and I was watching this with my mom, and she's always been on the team Mary and Collins, but she was so upset that he did not just switch his gear, go for Mary. Like, why not? She's there. She's obviously into you. Right. Again, back to everyone being too attractive in this film. Mary's hot in this film. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense that he won't go for her. Right. She's a beautiful woman. Yeah. Yeah. Hard agree. He asks to speak with Lizzie, and Mrs. Bennett makes everyone just, like, get up and leave in the middle of their breakfast and Lizzie is like no 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 and she like tries to grab Jane she's like Jane Jane don't go but they all go even Mr. Bennett she's like dad no please stay and he's like I don't know what to do and so he leaves and then Mr. Collins very slowly lays this flower in front of her and she is petrified mm-hmm. she cannot move and he he does his little proposal and it's just like it's a lot less grody than the 1995. Yeah. To me, it didn't feel like the absolute disregard for her feelings that the 1995 proposal felt like. It felt like he had this plan. And and he starts in the beginning when he says that he's doing this by the wishes of Lady Catherine de Bourgh. You can kind of see that like she told him he has to. And so he's going to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this really feels like a business transaction because like, it, yeah, it is like that's what marriages were and I feel like it makes total sense like it's like he is coming to like present something at a business meeting and he has like 
a PowerPoint he's reading off of, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he's going to finish that PowerPoint no matter what. Yep. It felt like an audition <laughs> where they said thank you, but he kept doing the monologue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Also, they had him kneel and the camera work just really wanted you to know that this man is shorter than Kira Knightley. Yeah, which is like... It was a big part. Of it. Oh, man. I like I could dive into that about how that's weird and like making fun of short men is weird and also like vaguely transphobic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, let's let's maybe just let men exist in the same way. We're like, let's just let women exist. I don't know. I don't know. I get it. He's short. I get it. Yeah, but I agree with that. It's extremely on the nose in a in an obnoxious manner. <laughs> it, it does highlight the fact that he's so nervous and so not picking up on her social cues that he won't even look up at her like he's looking at her belly button yeah it's uncomfortable yes she repeatedly tries to tell him no and he's like uh wait next slide um (laughs) i i'm pretty sure that you're just saying that so uh just think about it and (laughs) when she says no she turns and runs away and everyone falls into the room lydia and kitty are screaming cackling Poor Mary is just watching him like, why wasn't it me? And Mrs. Bennett chases her. Dude, this scene ending was sad. Like, it it made me very, very deeply, genuinely sad for him. The way that they are all laughing at him and he just looks so confused and mortified. Movie, calm down. That was not fair punishment for how awkward this was. No. And when Mrs. Bennett goes to ask Mr. Bennett to go talk to Lizzie, you can see in the background, Mr. Collins is just standing by the door, like staring out like, what did I do wrong? It's also very much like in the book, you're genuinely worried that Lizzie is going to have to marry this awful man and get trapped in a loveless marriage. Mm -hmm. Whereas this has a bit more of the vibe of Beauty and the Beast when Belle runs out after Gaston proposes to her and she's like, I want adventure in the great white somewhere. Absolutely. It's just like, it feels just like a stepping stone to true love. Yeah, she's also, she runs out chasing the geese or the geese are chasing her. There are a lot of geese involved. There are a lot of geese. Yeah. She runs out to the lake and... Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett come and Mr. Bennett has his iconic line where he's like, your mother wants you to marry Mr. Collins. And she's like, I will never speak to her again. And he says, "Okay, from this day forward, either your mother will never speak to you again if you do not marry him and I will never speak to you again if you do. And Lizzie, you can see the the love in her relationship with her dad there. She's like, thank you. So sweet. When she gets back, everyone is sitting on the stairs looking sad and I wanted to note that Lydia has a feather in her hand and is just like playing with it. Yeah, there's a lot of fiddling with feathers in this film. Feathers and ribbons. Mm-hmm. This film is like really obsessed with them. Yep. But still no feathery angel wings so what's the point yeah really what's going on there we'll have to talk to the costume designer it turns out that there's a letter from caroline and then we cut to caroline bingley and darcy all in a carriage everyone but caroline looking very sad to be leaving and i realized it doesn't really make sense like how did she and darcy convince bingley to leave it doesn't make sense in this movie why they're leaving. No, it doesn't at all. It made sense in the other adaptation, but what? It does not track here. And that's because, for one thing, we've been following the Bingley and Jane relationship much more closely mm-hmm. in this. Like, it's much more obviously marked out like these two have a flirtation. Yeah, right. And on the other hand, 
the Bennets have just not been as awful. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, Caroline's disdain was made clear, but Darcy's wasn't. And I think that since he's the main guy who's supposed to have taken Bingley away, it doesn't make sense. Also, Molly makes the point a billion times over that Bingley is someone who needs cold opinions on something. Uh-huh. He does. That's not established here. Yeah, no. Right. And so, like, you just see this, like, sweet and love boy, and you don't see him grappling with the fact that all these people are saying mean things about her. Yeah. You just see, oh, he's in love. Yeah. Man, I really think that they should have, like, just done away with the entire Wickham plot with what we got and really focused more on Bingley and Jane. I think that that would have Agree. solidified so much more. And I know that, like, they couldn't have, like... Like that's that's a huge thing to cut. They they would have gotten too yelled at for it. But it was so clear that they really prioritized this relationship over all of the Wickham drama. And I wish they just would have committed to it more. Absolutely. So that night, Lizzie is helping Jane pack a bag and she's reading the letter. And all the letter says is that they're going to see Georgiana because Darcy missed her and Bingley wants to see her and trying to imply that Bingley and Georgie are a thing, mm-hmm. which Jane believes. And Lizzie's like, shut up. Don't be stupid. Don't give up. And so they're packing a bag for her to go to London, stay with her aunt and uncle, and hopefully see Bingley. And none of this is really explained in this version. It's just accepted that she's going. And, and that's fine. Yeah. It's just a, a plot device. And the next morning, they're seeing her off. Daddy Bennett turns to Lizzie and says, it's your turn now. Why don't you go go after Wickham and get jilted by him? That should be fun. And Lizzie's like, father, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of that scene. And I actually don't have a study question at the end of the scene. And that actually is time for part two, is it not? Seems like it, yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, so that is the end of this episode of Pod and Prejudice. Will, thank you so much again for coming on. This has been a true delight. Oh, thank you. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you? For sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at WillWWrites. It's W-I-L-W underscore writes. You can find my site at WillWilliams.reviews. And you can find uh, my production company, Hug House, at HugHouse.Productions. Amazing. All right, listeners, that concludes this episode of Pod and Prejudice. Until next time. Stay proper. And find yourself someone who looks at you the way Mary looks at Collins. Yeah! <laughs> Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our beautiful show art is designed by Torrance Brown. To learn more about our show and our team, you can check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you like what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us, or just drop us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.